Did you know Family Parent hosts a regular event bringing together successful cases of reunification? Last month, we were happy to host parents who have been successfully reunited after their children were abducted to or in Japan, in addition to a legal expert who has helped individual families and fought for all children abducted to Japan. In our next event, we will focus on families reunited after abduction to the Middle East. You can register for this event and stay up to date on all our events by visiting our website and clicking on the events page. The link is also in the description of this podcast. FindMyParent.org is very pleased to host Jody Klugman Rob, the podcast host of Sex, Lies, and the Truth. Jody is a therapist and has been studying real people about their experiences with identifying DNA revelations like paternity fraud. Jody, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, happy to. So I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist uh, in California, in the United States. And over the years, I've specialized in family systems work and couples counseling. Uh, and when I work with individuals, even, I'm working with a family systems in mind. And over the course of my career as a psychotherapist, I discovered that I have what's called an MPE, a misattributed parentage experience. So that's where you learn that you have at least one of your parents is no longer biologically related to you as you were raised to assume. And that occurs most often through taking a commercial DNA test, such as Ancestry.com or 23andMe or any of the others. And then I also am a professor in a graduate program for counseling psychology at the Dominican University of California. Can you share a little bit about your personal experience? What drove you? You mentioned a little bit about your experience, and that seems to be the driving force in your academic research. Uh, but could you share a little bit about your personal story? Of course. So I, I actually am an unusual MPE story in that I have two revelations. The first one occurred when I was 12, and it was disclosed by my mother openly. And because of the nature of our family system at that time, uh, the man she was married to, who's on my birth certificate, he uh, and my mom divorced when I was two. And she married my stepfather when I was four. But I had weekly Saturday visits with my birth certificate father, her, uh, her first husband there. And uh, he was a fairly abusive and, and traumatized man, a veteran from the army with two tours in Vietnam. And in hindsight, he had a lot of undiagnosed PTSD happening, which influenced his abuse of me. So finally, she decided to disclose, you know, how would you feel if Sam, uh, my birth certificate father, was not your father, really, but Wayne, your stepfather? was really your biological father. And I thought, well, that would be great because Sam was not a good guy. And he was a really unreliable father. Anyway, I saw him one day a week usually. And uh, much of that time he would be passed out drunk. So 
this was kind of a great change. I didn't have to see him anymore. Life got a lot better. But in that process, we had to prove that I was not biologically related to him. And DNA testing was really in its infancy and it was not commercial. It was used for these sort of purposes in a lab, in a clinical lab. So it proved that Sam was not my biological father, but as the legal loopholes are in the United States, they did not have to prove who my dad was. They only had to disprove that Sam was. So it was accepted that both my mom and Wayne had declared that Wayne was my dad. So I lived the rest of Wayne's life, uh, assuming that he was. He died in 1996. I was about 22 years old. And then I had my second discovery in 2014. And it was because I sent away for what I considered to be just a fun way to look at my ancestry and get to know my dad's side of the family better. So Wayne's family are Jewish. A lot of the family emigrated from Russia, actually from Germany by way of Russia, many, many years uh, prior to the Holocaust, but a lot of the family perished in the Holocaust. So there was not a lot of discussion about family background and specific family members. And it was always just ignored somewhat. So I, th I thought, well, it, it'll be a nice way to kind of figure out where the family actually came from. And maybe I'll be able to get in touch with relatives, et cetera. And when my results came back from my 23andMe test, I had a completely different ancestry on 50% than I expected. My mom's anticipated Italian heritage was all there, represented as, as it was expected to. But all of a sudden I was 50% Scottish and that had never been part of any of the family folklore. Like I said, my father was Jewish. It was really expecting Ashkenazi background and maybe some German Russian uh, combination. And none of that was there. So part that I'm still trying to understand is that for two years, I kind of sat on that revelation without really understanding what it meant until 2016, November. And uh, it occurred to me like a ton of bricks fell on me that 50% of anything meant that it was a first degree relative and that had to be a parent. And so it, it, it occurred to me that I had all of a sudden now another father that I didn't know about. So I was just curious. So what you're describing, if I can relay it correctly, is there was perhaps a, a benevolent uh, intention to uh, find you a more appropriate father and to perhaps benevolently deceive you as to who is your biological father. At what age did that occur? I was 12 when I was told about my birth certificate father not being my actual biological father. And that was welcomed because he was not a good man. And I think my, my mom and who I call my father, my stepfather, they had the right idea in, in trying to protect me from him going further. Uh, and that was great. But this next discovery was not welcomed. So it was experienced much more traumatically. 
Do you think that perhaps if it was described to you as a young adult, you said in your 20s, early 20s or mid 20s, that you made this discovery by taking a genetic test, that that was disruptive to your life? Yes, it was extremely disruptive because it turned everything that I was told at 12 years old into a lie. And it had the unexpected effect of completely undermining my identity. There is a large portion of grief and trauma that is a big part of an MPE discovery, regardless of whether you discover your donor conceived, late discovery adoptee, or in my case, because of an affair, the non-paternal event or the MPE. The kind of trifecta that seems to comprise the mental health aspect of this is trauma, grief, and identity confusion. And most of us experience our one and only identity crisis in adolescence. And from an academic perspective, Eric Erickson was the the first uh, theorist to come up with that. And his work is still very prominent in this way. But generally, we have other identity changes in in large, you know, quasi-crises sort of ways through other life experiences. So whether that's a a close family member or partner passing away, Uh, you yourself have a significant health crisis or somebody close to you does a job loss. Any of these kind of major life experiences that are negative generally come with an identity change as well. And this MPE experience is right up there with that in terms of the trauma and identity changes. Can you describe, without using acronyms, what is MPE? And can you go through the various uh, different categories that categorize MPE? So our listeners understand the different profiles, characteristics, uh, family circumstances, that uh, would fall into this MPE category. Yes, absolutely. So it does get a little confusing with all the acronyms. (laughs) Think of it like an umbrella. (laughs) The big umbrella term is misattributed parentage experience. So M-P-E, misattributed parentage experience. Underneath that are three subcategories. Late discovery adoptee, Uh, We shorthand refer to that as LDA, late discovery adoptee. So that's an adoptee who has been adopted but never told. And they're discovering this in the same vein as the the rest of the subcategories. And this is different from a person who is adopted and told at the earliest possible stage. The second category is a donor-conceived person or DCP. And that ranges from one or both parents being donor gametes. So you could have a a married couple where the husband does not have any fertility and they use donor sperm or the opposite where they're using a donor egg and the female partner is either carrying the baby or they use a surrogate altogether Uh, or it's both. And then the third subcategory in that umbrella is what's called a non-paternal event or an NPE. That was the original name for all of this. But that refers specifically now to uh, people who are conceived from affairs 
consensual partner swapping, or sexual assault. And if you go back to the actual term, non-paternal event, it's cold, and it's not really descriptive of what is actually happening. So it requires a lot of explanation. So the community has come up with misattributed parentage experience as an overall definition to be more inclusive of everything that happens. So it's not just you don't know who your father is in terms of paternity, because you can just as much not know who your mother is. I've worked with many clients who were raised by an aunt to believe that they were really the biological mom, but it was really the mom's sister or it was a grandmother. And so maternity was also hidden. So we're using misattributed parentage experience as a more inclusive and general term. So uh, it, it also lacks the cold feeling of being an event, which is not a pleasant way to describe somebody. And so how are you conducting your research and what is the objective of your research um, in terms of, is there a, a thesis that you're trying to approve? What is the goal of your work? Sure. So I, I'm doing qualitative research. So there's really no thesis or hypothesis. I'm really looking at emerging themes that come from other MPEs telling their stories. But I'm specifically looking at the effect that this discovery has on identity formation and if there's a crisis present and then what happens to resolve that crisis. So I'm specifically curious about genealogical bewilderment. It's a fairly universal experience for an MPE of of all the different social media support groups that there are, and there are many. Most of the people involved in these groups talk very candidly about how decimated they feel with their identity. They no longer know who they are even though there's presumably half of your biology still intact. You still have one parent that you know that is definitely related to you. This has the feeling of completely undermining all of that as though none of it exists anymore. So I'm curious about the influence of that genealogical background because from a personal perspective, one of the first things I realized was you know, I'm, I'm know nothing about Scottish history. I know nothing about the culture. I don't really feel like I have a connection to it, although I had a strange and sort of hard to describe affinity to Scottish culture most of my life, and I didn't know why. And this helped explain that on a kind of preternatural level. But I discovered that as I was trying to search for my biological family, the thought of not ever having the information felt like I would never know who I truly was. And once I did find my biological family, I actually did start to settle into an identity because not only did I have my biological father's name, but I discovered a half brother that I never knew. And as I'm an only child, so having a brother on any level is just magnificent. I discovered an aunt and uncle, cousins, grandparents, and this family was actually quite welcoming. And so the more information that I received from them, the more connection that I received from them, I noticed my identity started to form itself and I started to feel more comfortable. And then it started 
started to feel like I was healing. Many stories where there are, uh, for example, when you're discussing adopted children who are in a very loving family uh, with loving siblings and in a very happy environment, but whereby they feel something that is not quite right or they just don't feel settled for one reason or another, loving mother, loving father, loving siblings, and it causes them to inquire, what is my background? And I think some of that is what you're describing. Yes. Uh, The adoption community has long spoke about the effect of feeling the outsider and like they don't really fit in anywhere because they straddle these two worlds. And oftentimes one of those worlds is hardly ever, if ever known. And then when it is discovered, if they do pursue that, then uh, they often feel like the outsider there as well. The MPE community echoes that quite the same. But isn't this oftentimes by well-intentioned parents who these well-intentioned parents in the, in the case of, of adoption, they chose the child. They love the child. They've raised the child as their own. And perhaps that child has other siblings who are not biologically siblings, but they are part of a cohesive family. And they're doing it out of, of love and goodwill and without meaning to harm anybody. They're innocently acting with goodwill. I think you're speaking only at that point of open adoptions where the adopted child is notified at the earliest possible moment where they can articulate and understand it. MPEs, the experience seems to be much different. So the majority, definitely not all, but the majority of MPEs have very difficult experiences once it's discovered within the, uh, I'll call it the known family, the family that they were raised with, rather than the newly discovered biological family. So much of the time, the moms in particular are are keeping this secret because of some some very specific reasons. And generally speaking, um, a lot of the clinical work that I'm doing with MPEs is trying to help them understand why this happened and deal with the repercussions of uh, the blame that comes to the MPE for finding it out. It's generally an innocent discovery but then when you discover this, it's a very natural instinct to go searching for, well, who am I actually related to then? I, I need to know the truth. But the moms will often hide that. And I think it's it's also easy to explain that many women hide that because they probably equate this to a quasi life or death kind of experience that if they didn't hide the nature of this particular child's paternity, then they might've been outcast from their family. They might not have been able to provide for themselves as a single parent. They would have been shunned as a whore, depending upon the culture, the religion, et cetera. And I think the, the moms generally develop a narrative where if they don't hide the secret, then their lives are over in a variety of ways. Can you provide us with some illustrative case studies without acronyms, just describing the situation in plain English 
a couple of case studies of the family situations that you have studied? Sure. Uh, I have a client. All of these case studies that I'll give you are, are client case studies. One of them is pretty representative of the overall experience of this. So it's a female who, as soon as she made the discovery and approached her mom with it, was told at first, well, the science is wrong. Um, None of this is true, so don't believe it. And as we know, the science is not wrong. The science doesn't lie. It's humans who lie. So the female client of mine decided to pursue it. And because you have close relatives listed, on the genetic profile when you get your results back, if you opt into that sort of thing. She was able to contact her newly discovered biological family and started getting information from that side. Her mother continues to deny that any of this happened and sort of pretends that all of this is made up and accuses my client of intentionally bringing harm to the family and shame to the family. So it's forever changed the relationship that my client has with her known family, including aunts and uncles who have decided to side with the mom instead of look at the facts of the case and recognize that their niece or granddaughter in this case is struggling and is experiencing a trauma for having this discovery. It's been completely disregarded. I have another client who is having a hard time adjusting to discovering that she's donor conceived, her and her twin sister. Parents never told them and the the donor was the aunt. So biologically speaking, my client's aunt is her mother and the woman who raised them is technically the aunt, if you can follow that. So as a donor conceived person, the person that she has attributed her her actual parentage to is technically her aunt. And it's changed how she sees herself. It's changed how she experiences her family who has a very difficult time talking about it. Uh, So much so that it's caused a lot of strife between family members who now accuse the, my client of disrupting the family and bringing shame to the family. So you're starting to see a theme emerging where there's an innocent discovery from the misattributed parentage person and then they get blamed for unwanted changes to the family dynamic when what they're really doing is trying to seek answers when they go through a naturally upsetting discovery. And so how do you generally counsel these individuals? I mean in traditional societies it's not actually uncommon when a mother perhaps cannot conceive, that perhaps her sister uh, may conceive a child and, for lack of a better word, donate that child to her sister to raise at her own. You know, in traditional societies, African, Middle Eastern, Asian societies, you know, that is sort of a, a, a common practice. Of course, you're practicing in the United States. Yeah, very different. <laughs> <laughs> When you counsel these children, adult children, these individuals, what is it that you are advising or how are you offering advice to give them comfort to be more comfortable in their personal skin? 
Yeah, absolutely. And you bring up a good point. One of the first indicators of donor conceived people or practice is in the Hebrew Bible with Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, uh, Sarah's handmaid who was used as a surrogate. So it is a common practice, but you know, puritanical uh, elements of the United States are still alive and well. And uh, culture and cultural overlays with social norms, et cetera, mean everything. So it has a lot to do with the culture in which the people are living in. And then second tier is really the family of origin and the dynamics that that family of origin maintains. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, if there were problems in, in people's lives, we don't talk about that. And certainly if that was sexual in nature and there was an affair, so non-paternal event, people experience a lot of shame because as they're searching, uh, they discover or end up disclosing sometimes uh, affairs, historical affairs to long-established relationships. So in terms of counseling, I'm relying on a combination of very well-informed and researched clinical applications between family systems theory, attachment theory, and a lot of cognitive behavioral work to help clients adjust to what their goal is in pursuing the answers and uh, using the family systems theories to help them navigate all these changing relationships between their known family and now the newly discovered biological family. And then in terms of the trauma piece, I, I'm trained as an EMDR practitioner. EMDR stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. It's one of the most effective trauma interventions ever discovered. And it's relatively new in terms of history of psychotherapy. It's roughly 40, 45 years old begun by a psychologist here in California, actually, named Francine Shapiro. I trained with Francine about 18 years ago, and I've been using it in my practice with first responders mostly, but have started using it with misattributed parentage experiences because it is a very effective and efficient way of resolving trauma. And when you are feeling traumatized, you want to feel better as soon as possible. And Traditional talk therapy, although great and very effective, takes a very long time, especially with trauma. And EMDR does not. It takes a fraction of the time. So I've begun using that to help kind of shortcut the uh, emotional component of this so that it's a lot easier to identify what the goals are and how to navigate all the action steps that get us to that goal. So, as you know, at FindMyParent.org, uh, we deal primarily, or and our listeners are primarily, and I don't like to use the word victims, I prefer to say have experienced um, parental abduction and parental alienation. Now, I see a lot of parallels between the, the work that you have done in terms of the case studies and the individuals you've dealt with, as well as the repercussions that the children who were subjected to abduction and alienation have occurred. I mean, the parallels are significant. Again, in, in terms of abduction, they may be removed 
from a cultural environment that they're familiar with. They may be removed from a linguistic environment that they're familiar with. It might be religious. It might be geographic. So I would like to ask you, in terms of what do you see as the psychological harm that occurs to these children in this situation where they are separated from what they had understood and what they now know, perhaps as young adults, adults later in life. Yeah, I'll speak to that as the clinician who's working with the adults, because I'm not working with kids in this way. I'll infer the psychological outcome based on what I'm finding in my research, which is without the basic background information of our genetics, we tend to form incomplete identities. And it's not until we have all of that information, and that could range from simple names of first-degree relatives to extended relatives, and it could be medical information or uh, cultural background and history, uh, names of ancestors from far away, et cetera. Not to mention just the benefit that humans get from the stories told about our ancestors and the practice of our cultural practices, whether that be religious or, or otherwise. And the absence of these things tends to point to genealogical bewilderment, which is a, a difficulty in forming identity without that information. So I can infer that these kids would grow up quite similarly, especially if they have memory of the culture with which they were removed from. And how do you think that would impact them later in life? Well, I think that attachment theory is such an interesting component of of psychology and has so many applications to human behavior. And I wonder how that would affect attachment later how that attachment issue might manifest later on. Attachment being the the quality of caregiving that we receive in the first five years of our lives. And so if our caregiver is responsive and loving, we tend to assume that our needs will get met and that creates a secure attachment uh, and, and sense of general security in ourselves that means less anxiety later in life. The opposite of is true when your caregiver is unresponsive, inconsistent, or inadequate, or even downright abusive, you start to expect that that is what all relationships will provide you. And it sets the stage for much higher anxiety throughout the rest of life and a general distrust in relationships. So it would be curious to follow those kids from you know, the, the point of alienation and or abduction and then see what kind of relationships they're able to sustain going in, into adulthood. And what about coercive behavior on behalf of parents? Well, what do you mean by that? How that affects them psychologically? So if there is a, a single uh, caregiver who coercively uh, suggests that the other parent is unloving. Mm-hmm. Our central nervous systems adapt and respond to the environments that we're in. So if we are being brought up in a coercive 
environment, then that's what we expect everything to be. And our nervous system will respond accordingly. We may seek out the same similar types of relationships as the one with the parent who was coercive. So it may promote more of the same type of behavior. It may promote more of the same in terms of parenting their children when it comes to their time to be a parent. You learn how to be first by being in your family of origin. And if your family of origin is then somewhat, um, shall I say, shrunk, because now the other parent has been eliminated, so to speak, has been left out and excluded or devalued so badly that they, even though they still interact with them, it's like an exclusion anyway, then, then that's what the child is going to potentially learn how to be as well. So going back to your research, what is your objective? Generally, my objective is to help provide a body of work to this really new and emerging field. Uh, I am not by means the only research out there. There's several uh, misattributed parentage people like myself who are conducting similar research, not necessarily focused on identity per se, but other aspects of it. And all that does is help us to better inform clinical practice, because right now there's a pretty big research practice gap where clinicians are not fully understanding how to help people like myself. Uh, I find that by the time clients find me, they've gone through, you know, somewhere between three and six therapists trying to find somebody who understands it and doesn't dismiss it. Unfortunately, whether it's a professional or a, a personal relationship in their lives, people are using some, some platitudes to dismiss the people discovering this. And they'll say, well, you know, what's the problem really? Your dad is still your dad and nothing has really changed about you. And Actually, nothing could be further from the truth. People experiencing misattributed parentage discoveries feel like everything has changed in the same way that somebody who's just lost somebody very close to them, either through death or just the ending of a relationship, feel that everything has changed about them. Uh, through the same way that when you discover you have a significant or terminal illness, it feels like everything has changed. And this is no different. So my goal is to contribute to the body of work out there to help reduce that research practice gap. And uh, through the curriculum that I've created for misattributed parentage experiences, I'm trying to help train mental health professionals so that they're better equipped to work with this population. So your goal is to raise greater awareness. You're saying that there is within the community, within the um, therapy and counseling and psychological community, there's a lack of awareness. And you're hoping that your research will contribute to open up the spectrum of discussion to identify and treat these types of familial conditions. Yes. Yeah. The psychological outcomes, including the rise in anxiety the identity crisis uh, and the trauma. My goal is to help the professional community be able to treat this effectively 
increase awareness of how this affects people, not just in the professional community, but in the population at large so that it's not stigmatized. And uh, ultimately, a farther goal down the, the road for me is to contribute to general research on identity, which never before was a strong interest of mine until my own personal discovery. Can you describe when you say identity? Uh, can you elaborate? Absolutely. Identity, I think, is um, overlooked in terms of its complexity. It's surprisingly uh, deep in terms of what goes into forming identity. And so kind of the elevator pitch around this is that we we have an identity that's comprised of two main parts, a personal identity and a social identity. And the social identity informs the personal identity. And all of this contributes to answer the question, who am I? Or I am. And so social identity is every group, every social construct that we are part of, that we subscribe to. The first one is our family of origin. This is the first group that we belong to that has a collection of norms that we must abide by and a collective sense of identity that helps shape ours. And a lot of that is informed culturally. Then we start to have other group affiliations, and that could be political, religious, counterculture, could be anything at all that has a group cohesiveness. All of that is taken in to comprise our personal identity that is considered to be a cohesive and stable form of of who we are through time. That's not to say that it's static. It's stable and cohesive, but it's also responsive and reflexive to our life experiences because so much of our life experience helps shape our identity. Health being one, job, national affiliation, political affiliation, even gender, sexuality, all of that contributes to our identity and some of that can change over time. So it's a fluid process, but it's got to be a stable enough process that you don't experience a crisis through it. And then when you experience a crisis, that contributes to a massive restructuring of that identity. Jody, thank you so much for that very insightful discussion. So if I am an individual, a young adult, who has discovered that perhaps there is a misplaced parent... What, what advice would you recommend to that individual in terms of seeking help? I think the first thing, the most important thing is to align yourself with other people with this experience. And it's very easy to fall prey to the belief that this hasn't happened to anybody else before. It's only happening to you and your life is over. And you, you a lot of people describe it as though the floor has fallen out from under them. And that they're not able to look at themselves in the mirror anymore because they don't know who they are. So my experience, both personally and professionally, is that when you align yourself with others with a similar experience, it starts to normalize all the feelings that you have and all the tribulations that you're experiencing so that it facilitates healing better. The curriculum that I've created, I call it parental identity discovery. One of the foundations of that curriculum is what I call your one person. So you find one person that is presumably not your spouse or partner, 
but a friend or a confidant that you respect that will listen to you bring this up repetitively because in the same way that grief requires you to repeat discussion in order to find healing, this is quite the same. Somebody who can tolerate hearing about this on repeat, but whom you respect. And so when they say, wait a minute, have you considered, or I think you're going in the wrong direction, or what about that you won't take that as a personal affront and become defensive. You will you will respect that person's objective opinion and say, no, I hadn't thought about that. Let me sit with that for a little bit. And then find either a support group or a therapist or join the numerous social media groups, mostly on Facebook, so that you can see how other people have navigated this and exactly how many are going through it. One of the Facebook groups has, I think, upwards of 8,000 members. So it's a, a very robust community and only growing. I think the next piece is that there needs to be some professional help in helping you navigate the identity confusion and how to approach family dynamics, which is going to require some boundaries, some communication skills training, and shoring up of your own ego, right? Any insecurities in there or sense of worth that will get challenged by your known family who oftentimes say, how dare you? How could you have done this to us or to me? Many moms, unfortunately, say that. How could you do this to me? When it's not being done to the mom, it's quite quite the opposite. It's being done to the person discovering it. As an academician in a very niche segment of the psychological market, do you feel sometimes discouraged that there is not wide acceptance of your notion of the psychological damage to children and young adults in the field that you're studying? No, actually. And I think that's because once I explain it, other colleagues are, are able to get there and get where they need to go. It's, uh, it's just I have to kind of explain and navigate the cultural mores that get in the way. Those obstacles are so automatic for people that calling attention to those biases, I, I think, is the important first step. I don't feel like I have a pervasive disappointment or any struggle with my own professional community. I am disappointed that I hear reports from clients that anyone in my field has been dismissive because we are trained to be empathic and uh, helpful regardless of the topic. We certainly can't have personal experience in every single subject that a client brings in to our rooms. And we shouldn't have to have personal experience in every single thing to be effective. And we don't need to. So the fact that some people in my field are are behaving that way, I am disappointed in the training programs. You know, I, I am a professor for a graduate program that trains people how to be therapists. And uh, I find myself with some disappointment at those programs that are not preparing clinicians adequately. But once I find I explain the process, then they 
catch up. And that's encouraging. And, and how would you propose that these programs be better improved? I would like to see a heavier influence of identity research in graduate programs. When I went through my graduate program, and interestingly enough, I'm an alum of the same program that I'm a professor in, there was very little to no uh, work with identity. It was a mention in terms of developmental theory, again, through Eric Erickson, and, and not much more beyond that. And I'd say with my awareness of misattributed parentage experiences, my awareness of how often identity enters the room therapeutically has grown. So even if I have a client who's not discovered misattributed parentage, but they have other family issues, other life cycle issues, I am so much better prepared now to help them face and resolve identity confusion that they didn't even know they had. But as soon as I bring it up, as soon as I say, do you feel like your identity has changed? And does any part of that feel lost to you? It's like a puzzle piece has fit into place for them, somewhat like an epiphany where they say, I didn't realize it until you use that term, but yes, I don't really feel like myself anymore. And I didn't, I didn't know that that's what it was. Yeah. I don't feel like I understand my identity. So it's improved my clinical abilities and it's Im improved how I work with all sorts of clients, not just MPEs. So I think that would be a great place to start. And to that effect, maybe a little bit more on how to work with trauma. Right now, EMDR, that eye movement des desensitization and reprocessing intervention is not something that's taught in schools. It's a, an add-on, if you will, that you, you pay a, a substantial amount for training in. It's a very expensive additional training to what you've already paid for your graduate program, but it's quite worth it. I think I use it daily in my practice with at least one client a day. That probably should be taught on the graduate level. Can you describe that more fully? So eye movement desensitization and reprocessing is a neurological intervention that really mimics the way the two hemispheres of the brain process information. So all day long, our brains process everything uh, mutually between those two hemispheres. Except for when there's a trauma, seemingly the brain does not know what to do with that. So it, it sort of puts that trauma off to the side, separates it from the regular processing and resiliency of our brains. Because it's set aside, it can have its, its own presentation like it's on a loop. And a lot of that is what uh, PTSD is based on. It seems that by keeping it separate and on this loop, it keeps it in the short-term memory so that it's always accessible. The Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing process is bilateral, meaning that it goes across that invisible midline of our body that dissects us vertically, right? So it goes back and forth. If you were to use it visually, your head stays stationary, but your eyes move back and forth following a, a certain pace. We can also do it auditorily so that you have headphones that ping sound back and forth. Or if you're working in person, you know, post-pandemic, you can be virtual or 
in person and eye movement desensitization and reprocessing works just as well, astonishingly, uh, through Zoom. But in person, we can use tactile paddles that vibrate alternately from one hand to the next. And all of those three uh, different stimulations mimic the way that the brain processes information bilaterally. So we focus on a specific topic, what we call a target memory. So let's say, for an example, uh, the client that I had mentioned whose donor conceived and is having trouble adjusting. We're using this to work through the anger and the sense of worthlessness that this particular client has. And so sometimes we'll start with that negative core belief, I am worthless. And then I ask that client to identify what memory or image represents the worst part of that belief about yourself. And this particular client chose to focus on uh, something that was unrelated to the discovery. So it signaled that this was actually a, a long-term attachment issue that had been going on that predated the discovery, but the discovery really magnified. And so then we use that particular target memory. And so, you know, let's say that this would be, uh, you know, it could be anything. My parent devalued me when I asked for help and they refused. And so I asked them to reconsider that memory, bring it back up to the forefront. Think about that negative belief, I am worthless. We talk about the feelings that come up from that and where they feel that in their body. There's always a corresponding somatic feeling. And then on the subjective units of distress scale, zero to 10, how upsetting is that memory? And we use that scale to determine how successful our progress is. So if they start on the upper end of the spectrum, closer to the 10, we're really working to get as far down as close to a zero as possible. If it doesn't resolve at a zero and it stays at a one, there might be some appropriateness to that based on the experience. Right? So when I'm working with first responders and I use this quite often with, with that population, seeing the kinds of things that first responders see, it's not necessarily reasonable to have them resolve to a zero. These are extremely upsetting things that they're seeing and experiencing and leaving it at a one is actually appropriate uh, for whatever that particular experience is. So that's kind of the elevator pitch of EMDR. And uh, because it's a neurological intervention, it works so efficiently. The brain is bringing up, you know, the psyche, if you will, is bringing up images that are related to that, that have also been unresolved, even if they're unrelated to that target memory, at least in content, it's related emotionally. And that's what the, the brain is finally consolidating. And it has the wonderful outcome of seemingly transferring this trauma that's been stuck on a loop into long-term memory. So sometimes it's even harder to recall the memory after this intervention, which is a, a nice outcome because it's no longer on the forefront, influencing everything about that person's behavior. The events that you're describing, and you compared it comparatively to what is commonly known uh, as PTSD, can you describe the comparison 
uh, between PTSD and the trauma that you've described. Okay, so PTSD, if we don't know, is post-traumatic stress disorder. And almost anything can be experienced as a trauma. So much of it is really the meaning that we place on it. I could have three people in a room experiencing the same thing. And based on the meaning that all three of those people individually have placed on that experience, one person at least will experience it as a trauma, while others don't. Trauma on that level is to qualify for post-traumatic stress disorder is something that you feel like is life-threatening. So you might have experienced an initial life-threatening incident. And even if it wasn't actually threatening your life, if you experienced the fear that it might, that qualifies. Also, it contributes to hyperarousal so that your system, instead of being at its normal baseline functioning, is functioning at a much higher anxious level where you are on high arousal, looking on alert for anything that would, again, threaten or harm your life. In terms of misattributed parentage experiences, again, nothing has necessarily been life-threatening, but on a subjective level, it is so undermining in terms of well-being and the sense that family has now maybe cut you off, that that can have a traumatic effect because of the meaning you place on being accepted by your family. So this is all wrapped up in identity as well. And so you can see how these are somewhat interrelated because now if you're being rejected by your family of origin, it's one of your identity groups that's saying, nope, you can't be part of us anymore. And so it's like you've been stripped of that identity. And sometimes we see this manifesting in, well, we're no longer biologically related. So you're no longer in the will. And this could be somebody that was raised to be a, a grandchild or a child. And a, siblings will now fight over inheritance because that person is no longer a full sibling or a, sub, a biological sibling at all. And it will have that kind of outcome. So if I'm a, a child or a young adult, and I have found out that perhaps I've been subjected to a certain story where I don't know my true biological father or mother, are there resources that I can access to gain help, to gain support? Uh, what are your suggestions? Yes, there are actually an increasing number of resources. So in addition to individual private practice therapists like myself that are receiving training on how to work with this, probably the first step is to do a social media search. Facebook, and to some lesser extent, Instagram, is the uh, larger compilation of all of these groups. You would search under things like non-paternal event, late discovery adoptee, misattributed parentage experience, donor conceived person, you know, all those keywords. You're gonna come up with a handful, quite a large handful actually, of groups with specific focus on you know this discovery but maybe it's just for jewish origins or maybe it's just for adoption uh but there are two probably main uh, social media groups the first one that was created is uh it's called the NPE fellowship 
So NPE, if you remember, is Non-Paternal Event Fellowship. That's the largest group with, I think, close to 8,000 members at this point. The next one is called Right to Know. And that has a website that you can easily access that has so many resources. So righttoknow.us. They work with all segments of the misattributed parentage experience. So all of those three subcategories. And they do a lot of work with helping to support legislation for people to know their biological information, their genetic information, such as for adoptees who have closed records and are not allowed to access their birth name, their birth parent's name, or any medical information that would come with that. There are support groups here and there that when you do a quick Google search, you'll find. I know two of them, my own being one, are both in California, so Pacific Standard Time. I think one might be on the East Coast as well, but I'm less familiar with that one. And um, I think that's the best place to start because then you can start to find other resources like private practice clinicians who can help with how to approach your parent. Or uh, even if it's the other direction, I've worked with several parents who are trying to figure out how to disclose it. Well, this is my next question on the flip side. Are there resources for parents who are trying to identify ways to perhaps speak with their children? Not as many, unfortunately, as the other ones I described for the person discovering this about themselves, but I think that's increasing. So I like to work with all, all elements of this discovery, and I very much enjoy working with the parents who are trying to figure out how to make this disclosure. I think first you have to come to accept there is no great time. If you're looking for just the right time to do this, there is none. There's always going to be something that you identify feels too hard and insurmountable. Client that I'm thinking of, they're twins. Uh, One of them was just starting medical school and they wanted to wait. And I said, you know, medical school is quite lengthy. This is going to be a long wait. Are you sure you're just not trying to avoid this? Because the fear is that they'll be rejected, that they'll, that they'll be so angry at them that it'll destroy the relationship. And I immediately normalize the fact that there will be anger. Yes, there will be anger and everybody has a right to that or any other feeling that comes up as a result of these disclosures. If you uh, try and avoid any of this just because you're going to be afraid of their emotional reaction, then you're never going to disclose this. And eventually they will find out on their own and come to you and you'll be inclined to lie because you're still afraid of their reaction. So the better scenario is to actually volunteer the information and explain the factual reason why you chose to keep it from them all this time. And that can include, I am afraid of how you will feel about this. That's a reasonable reaction. And once the person who's discovering this gets through the initial emotional response to this, they will understand and accept that because it is a reasonable response. I am afraid that this will change our relationship forever. I am afraid that you will be angry. And I just didn't know when it was a good time. 
that worked out quite well for the clients that I've coached with this. Uh, when they follow that direction, it works out well because you're not trying to control for somebody else's feelings. You're giving them room for those feelings and you're normalizing those feelings as acceptable. And then it's just a matter of you managing your own anxiety about it. And that's a lot easier than trying to manage the lie. Can you share with us, we understand your passion, your background, and the reason why you have focused professionally on this specific subject. Can you share with us a little bit about your background and what drove you, what your passion was, and why you have focused so specifically on this subject matter? Absolutely. I discovered my misattributed parentage experience technically in 2014 when I took the 23andMe test, but it didn't occur to me for the first couple of years, strangely, what it really meant. And then 2016, it finally hit me. And I started thinking about how I wanted to to pursue this. It, it, it was shocking. It didn't make any sense to me why I had 50% Scottish background after never having any inclination that that was part of any family history. But it was so curious and so consuming that it was hard for me to attend work. It was hard for me to parent my children. It became kind of consuming. And a friend of mine turned me on to a woman named Christina who is a genetic genealogist, and she helps people in my situation find their families. So I hired her, and within two weeks, she found my biological father. Now, keep in mind, I, I had prepared myself to steal this away for another couple of years, thinking this is probably going to take a really long time, and I won't see any results for probably several years, and it took her two weeks. And it happens quickly because so many people, particularly in the United States, take these commercial DNA tests that also opt into sharing their genetic profile on their profile that you have automatic matches. The system is able to automatically connect you based on the degree of relation that you have through what's called centimorgans. So the, the measurement for genetic connection is called a center Morgan. And I was connecting to a, like a second cousin. And she triangulated how I was related to this cousin. Uh, and it's a, a secret sauce that I can't even explain. That's, that's her domain. But within a few months, I was knocking at the door of my biological father. Now, that part is kind of important because generally when you reach out to a biological relative, you're not doing it face-to-face -face for the first time. You're making a phone call or writing a letter and sending it registered mail. I had done all of those things with Christina's coaching and he had ignored all of it and actually returned my registered letter to me unopened. So I got really frustrated and knowing that I was prepared for all outcomes, including a rejection, but I wasn't prepared for no response whatsoever. And I'm just stubborn enough that I decided I, I couldn't live with not knowing. Like I knew his name, but I, I needed to talk with him. I needed some information, particularly because I needed to know 
my origin story. I wanted to know my conception and his version of it. So I decided to knock on his door and my husband accompanied me. It was Labor Day weekend here in the States. <clears throat> I live in the Bay Area in San Francisco and it is not normally a hundred degrees here, but it was that weekend and unnaturally hot. And I'm knocking at his door and he pretends not to be himself. So that part was confusing and I didn't really know what to do. So as he turned me away, I made it down the street with my husband in our car. And I said, you know, I think we need to pull over. I, I just don't feel good about how this is ending. Again, I was prepared for a rejection, but this, this didn't feel like a rejection. This felt like a dismissal, no acknowledgement of who he actually was. And he was looking at me so strangely. I'm a trained therapist. I understand body language. I understand facial expression. And when I'm trying to turn somebody away from my front door, I don't look at them longingly. And he was. So I decided to go back. And this time I showed him my phone before I said anything. And I said, I think this is you. I showed him a picture of himself. It was the only picture we could find. It was his high school yearbook photo. And there, by the way, was no other uh, digital footprint for him. He was not on any sort of social media. And he was. Uh, barely findable digitally other than you know, mortgage documents and things like that. So he was astonished <laughs> and he knew who I was the whole time, but he had a, made this agreement with himself and probably my mom as well, that he would not come find me. He would not look for me. And, and I think he was hoping that I would just go away. And so then when I came back that second time and said, this is you, right? And you know, my mom, I'm pretty sure I'm your daughter and I'd just like some information. Could we ask you some questions? And he let me in the house at that point. And three hours later, I discovered that he knew about me from the beginning, had decided to leave when I was two years old, but had lived with my mom for two years raising me as his own, but she was still married to the guy who was on my birth certificate. So he was doing so secretively, knowing that I was his, because my mom had convinced her then husband that I was his. And then when she decided that she was going to divorce her then husband and then marry somebody else that she had had an affair with, he decided to leave. And his name is Tim. Tim decided to leave. He had uh, already a son. He's eight years my senior, and uh, he didn't really have a consistent relationship with him either. So this was in, in line with who he was, sort of on brand and part of a pattern. And that's how I was raised with my stepfather as my father until they told me it. 12, that my stepfather was my biological father. And then we come back to 2014 when I discovered that that was actually not true. I had a third father altogether. So three different men. Tim, unfortunately, passed away this last January, but I had had four and a half years, roughly, of a really nice relationship with him. We got to know each other really well. 
He lived in the Bay Area until his final year. He had moved to Tucson, Arizona, and then called me one day to tell me that he was diagnosed with cancer. And a week later, he passed away. My brother and I have become extremely close. We met each other maybe two months after I met Tim. And my brother's family and my family, we are very close. We actually travel together and vacation together. Um, I adore them. It It is extremely rewarding. And we were all able to be with Tim when he passed away. And it is probably one of the most surreal experiences I have ever had. Jody, that's uh, the, the most emotive story perhaps I've ever heard. Thank you for sharing uh, that experience. Um, Your sharing of the experience is just illustrative of how complicated family relationships are. We are discussing something that is uh, slightly different uh, from our uh, Find My Parents audience, which is more subjected to parental abduction and parental alienation. However, the synergies and similarities cannot be ignored. They are so similar. And the impact on the child is so similar. The insights that you have provided in terms of the complex identity issues that a child faces when they are taken from a certain cultural environment and or discover that they are part of another cultural community. And also exploring and learning that there are siblings, relatives that they never knew about. And again, I think your explanation about the individual was very profound. Thank you. I'm so happy I contributed. So we thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your contribution. And uh, we would be delighted to remain in contact with you. And we hope that you will join our community to continue to uh, provide us with your research, your input, and to collaborate with us further. Oh, I'd be happy to. That is so meaningful to me. Thank you so much. Bum, ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum.